for tonight, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Joni Coolidge. Again, she's speaking about her experiences in using her gifts and working in conflict resolution. And she'll get us thinking about some of our own gifts and conflict resolution in our own lives as well. She is the Northern Virginia Regional Director for the Ignatian Volunteer Corps and has a PhD in Conflict Analysis and Resolution from George Mason University. Do we have any Mason people here? Woo! She will tell you a lot more about herself and please give her a nice warm welcome. Can you hear me? Good. Um, thank you all, and thank you, um, Allison and Melissa and Eric, um, for the kind introduction, but for also the invitation to come here tonight. So when I speak with audiences, I try to talk with you and not at you, and so that's why I went around to get to know you a little bit, and that was really helpful for me. But I do have some sort of general questions so you can also kind of get to know each other. So if you're willing to play along, just raise your hand if this description fits you. Um, who here is at Theology on Top for the very first time? Oh, a lot. Great. Oh, and uh, me too. Um, how many of you here are still distraught about the cat's loss? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> And uh, how many are banking on the Wizards winning tonight? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk fast, you guys. <laughs> so now I want to ask the question, raise your hand if anyone has shown you a kindness today. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And the last question is, how many of you know your calling? Okay, good, because I'm going to talk about that tonight. Um, when, I, when Allison asked me to speak about conflict resolution, I realized pretty quickly in the time allotted I can't solve all the conflicts or teach you all I know about conflict resolution. So I've chosen to tell you a story. And in telling that story, which is multiple, has multiple layers to it, um, I think you'll get a sense of how I have worked out my professional life and my calling um, in this field of conflict analysis and resolution in which I participate. So, happy Easter, everyone. So, and many of you are probably not surprised by that. You know that we're in the 50 days of Easter from um, uh, Easter Vigil, which ends in Pentecost, so we're about halfway through. And the reason why I mention this is because this is the time in which the disciples spent a lot of time in the upper room. In biblical times, upper rooms were common meeting places for prayer and large gatherings. King David directed his son Solomon to build an upper room in the temple as a place of worship. Rich people used, built spacious gathering rooms and decorated them very elegantly. And Jesus shared very intimate fellowship and important teaching with his disciples in the upper room. Transformative moments occurred there. Passover, conflict, uh, Judas's betrayal, the first Eucharist, Thomas's doubt, seeing the resurrected Christ for the first time for some of the disciples, prayer, and Pentecost. In all these events, the disciples entered, encountered Jesus and the Holy Spirit. 
So I'm going to kind of interact with you, so just take a moment and think to yourself, just silently, do you have an upper room? An upper room in which you've encountered Jesus of the Holy Spirit. And think about where is it? How often do you spend time there? And then what happens or what happens when you go there? So when the disciples gathered in the upper room for the Passover meal with Jesus, he, he tells them that he's, someone is just about to betray him. And do you guys remember how the disciples respond? They become defensive. They start posturing about who has been more faithful. And it blows up into an argument. Do you possibly think that Jesus at that moment was thinking, and I'm about to die for these bozos? Um, so, if you remember, what, what, do you remember what Jesus did? Anybody? Well, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't give them the silent treatment. He doesn't make a cutting remark. He actually takes them serious. And he engages them with this question. He asks, for who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So that's our first conflict resolution sort of hint. <laughs> when you're faced with people who are defensive, sometimes asking a question is the best way to turn it around. But Jesus is persistent. That's a long night. A lot happens in that evening. He doesn't lose his cool. And if anything, he respects the emotional weight of his announcement about the coming betrayal. And he carries them beyond it. Later in the evening, he tries to explain on a whole different level what is going on. In fact, we just heard these words from the Gospel on Sunday at Mass. Jesus goes on to say, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? For I go to prepare a place for you. Lastly, that evening he prays, not just for his disciples, but for all those who will believe in him through the disciples' message. In your Bibles, it will say, prayer for all believers. So it's the coolest thing, at least I think it's the coolest thing, that at the Last Supper, Jesus prayed for all of us, all of us who are believers and believers still to come. So we were there with him. He held us in his heart while he was having dinner with Jesus, with his disciples. And this is what his prayer says. It's a little bit longer than what I will read, but um, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me, you and me are one. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So Jesus' last words are imploring his disciples to put aside their petty differences and to grasp the bigger picture, beyond the here and now, not just in that night, but for all generations and time to come. And I share with you with it, this with you because the upper room provides the context for the story I'm about to share, which is my story. 
It's the story of my vocation to marriage and family and my calling to a ministry of shalom. And like all stories, at least all good stories, they're complex and they have layers to them. And this is true for you too in your story. It's operating on three sort of levels at all times. The first story is our personal stories, our personal faith journeys. And for me, it's the love story between me and God. The second story is about me and everyone around me and who I'm in relationship with. And the second story is how that love motivates me to engage with my brothers and sisters in the world around me. And the third story is remembering that I am part of a body of believers, like I said, that started from the beginning of time and goes to the end of time. It's the salvation history in which I am pay playing a little part. And the church now, in a moment of time, is playing a part in this cosmic unfolding of salvation history. So I was born a cradle Catholic and I was gifted with infant baptism. But true self-possession of my faith did not come until adulthood. My first encounter with the upper room, that place where I stormed the heavens, begging for God to make himself known to me, was in Northeast Washington, D.C., in a literal upper room at a parsonage. It was my bedroom. I had just graduated from college, had moved 3,000 miles away from my home to D.C. on a whim and a prayer, and was dirt poor interning for free and working part-time jobs to pay the rent. May sound familiar to some of you. Um, but somehow, the Lord found me, or I found the Lord. I started to depend on him to help me make friends, to find mentors, to find a church, a real job, and most importantly, to find a purpose. Alone in my upper room, I learned a lot about God how to fear him, which is the beginning of wisdom, to worship him, to praise him, thanksgiving, intercession, fasting. I was convinced that to love God, you had to know him. So I also spent hours reading scriptures. I worked on Capitol Hill and became involved in urban youth ministry, moving into a predominantly African-American neighborhood with two African-American roommates. I encountered racism immediately. When my roommate came home furious because a police officer followed her around the 7-Eleven expecting her to shoplift. And that was just the beginning. Fast forward a few years later, my friends and I were traveling to Rehoboth Beach for the weekend when our car broke down. The mechanic refused to help another of my African-American friends to fix her car. Desperate in the middle of nowhere, she stayed in the car while I asked the same gentleman to help us, and he fixed the car. It took that dramatic incident for me to finally say to the Lord, here I am, send me. You see, I had felt, with all that prayer going on, <laughs> that for some time, the Lord was calling me to start an intentional community for single women to live together as believers in true abandon to Christ. I felt the pull to start and lead this new ministry, but I was scared. And I really, if I'm truly honest about it, I really just wanted to get married. But I was still burning from how the mechanic had treated my friend, and I remember sitting on the rocks, looking out at the ocean, and having a little heart-to-heart -heart with God. 
Earlier, I had asked my friend who had started a men's intentional community on Capitol Hill. Some of you may know it. It's called Jonathan House. Anybody know it? It's on 3rd East Capitol Street and 3rd. Um, how, how long would it take to start a ministry like that? And he told me five years. And I just, <laughs> I couldn't handle that. I'm like, are you kidding me? Five years? I can't possibly wait that long. I need to get married. Da, 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 da. So, um, and I, so my response, I'm sure none of you have ever done this before, but I definitely started negotiating with God. <laughs> I'm all, didn't Jesus just spend three years with the disciples? And I don't have to be better than Jesus, so how about three years? <laughs> and so according to my logic, you know, I, I thought that would be good. Um, I submitted. And what happened is that a ministry called Esther House was born. We spent nine months in prayer, and then we formed our own upper room. We sought out 12 older prayerful women who were strong believers to walk with us. One evening, we brought them all together for intercessory prayer, and it was that night that the Holy Spirit fell upon us. The Lord spoke, giving us a vision of a blue rose. What is a blue rose? Well, a blue rose is a rose that's unique. It's only one that God can create. And a few months later, we moved into a blue row house on Northeast Washington, D.C., in a high-crime, low-income neighborhood where drugs and violence permeated the community. Now, this was a while ago because that same neighborhood is now gentrified and it doesn't look the same, but, um, but there we loved unabused and neglected children. We helped single moms with Thanksgiving meals. We built community across color and generation while sirens screeched into the night. Our cars and homes were broken into. My roommates, um, my her mother, survived a knife wound while she was visiting because we got robbed. And one of our boyfriends and the girls in the house um, was actually shot at. Um, but the story here is not about violence. It's not about trauma. It's about how we learn to trust God, share our lives with others different from ourselves, and about living authentic lives of faith. I learned a great deal about myself, too, and how I could bring people together. Catholics and Protestants, whites and blacks, children and adults, folks from different economic means. I could build community, even with simple tools like a bowl of popcorn. Building relationships is the foundation of shalom. It's the foundation of conflict resolution. Together in Sisters of Christ, we learned how to stand on the promises of God, and we learn that he does not abandon nor forsaken his children, even if society does. That love is stronger than hate and casts out fear. Each of us women came to understand quite personally that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This ministry went on for 17 years, but as I said, as the neighborhood gentrified, we ended up selling the house, but those relationships endured. So now it's your turn. I'm going to take a minute and ask you a question. So I'm in this moment trying to uh, figure out what to do with myself, right? So I had a full-time job. I'm working on the Hill as a professional. So all that ministry was on the side. So you in this room may have a clear vocation of marriage, holy orders, consecrated life, or maybe simply being asked to wait on the Lord for now. But think for a moment if there's anything rising up in you that might be the Holy Spirit calling you to something. At home, 
in ministry, through work, to help build the kingdom or serve those around you. And if you're confident enough or bold enough, if you can turn to the person next to you and maybe share that with them, I'm going to give you a minute or two. If there's anything burning on your heart,
but at the same time it gave me opportunities to engage in conflict resolution practice so that's for me what it was everything interpersonal conflict community conflict and international which is you know between states or within a state like civil wars in the area of international interpersonal conflict i trained as a mediator and that's bringing two parties together things like uh, child custody, landlord tenant, uh, neighborhoods, roommates, um, family mediation, those were the kinds of disputes that I worked with. In the arena of uh, community conflict, I designed a practicum with two other doctoral students and we started a dialogue process that brought together the seemingly warming, warring factions of Fairfax County police officers and youth suspected to be in gangs. Our first job was establishing some common agreements over how we were going to proceed. For example, do we agree to leave our guns at the door or not? And you might think that that's ridiculous, but it really wasn't. And at the time, I was six months pregnant, so I was very keen on figuring that out. Um, essentially, in this first process, in the beginning, the parties outline what is the purpose of coming together? How are we going to manage our conversation? What are we going to do when we are together? So it's all about establishing the norms for the conversation. If you, you know, in Peace Talks International, say it talks about talks, that's what this is. So how are we going to be, or is it going to be confidential? How are we going to be civil? How are we going to relate what goes on in this room outside these doors back to our different groups who don't even want us to be here to begin with? So. So that's the first part is to talk about talks and then the second part is what do the parties actually want to know about each other the content piece what do they think they know about each other but maybe not true what are the interests and agendas of each of the parties what are the non-negotiables what past traumas and ongoing barriers impact the parties the process the outcome what do they have in common it's the what do they have in common which keeps the process going and that's our job in many respects is to help them see it and figure out and have experiences where they have more in common than not. So after three months, this small group of four officers and four youth did come to respect each other, trust each other, and actually work together. It actually impacted how they do local policing down in Fairfax. In the, uh, we were in the Bailey's Crossroads area. In the area of international conflict, I assisted my professors with behind-the-scenes gatherings of established government leaders and a separatist movement that used terrorist tactics. This conflict had existed over generations, was more deadly, expended more national resources. We employed many of the same principles and 30-party intervention process as we did in the police youth dialogues. But this was over a much longer period of time, years, and I was a bit player in an ongoing process. But the same things occurred. Learning to build trust again, healing relationships, finding out that you're both human beings and you have families and um, same kind of passions. And then we try to be constructive and we engage in a, a problem-solving process in which parties try to agree on how to move forward. And what I learned from all these different things, these different types of conflicts, is that whether it's interpersonal, communal, or nation state, at the heart of all conflict are human beings, each of them made in the image of God, each deserving a human dignity, despite their despicable behavior, 
their despicable speech or malintent. So if the foundation of building shalom is relationships, like I learned in the first sort of segment, um, then working to repair broken relationships is a key ministry of shalom. So it's no joke, loving your enemy is super, super hard. <laughs> and it definitely requires a living faith. So I'm gonna turn it back to you guys. So how do you do this? How do you reconcile your private faith in the public arena? How do you take, whether you're an engineer or a librarian or a student um, or working with young kids or older kids or in a computer with computers, how do you take what you know and believe to be true and then bring it into the public sphere? So give you another two minutes to talk about. <laughs> connected to my upper room so but it's things shifted a little bit so at this time um, I'm now married and um, uh, let's see uh, raising kids so they, they were in there <laughs> and um, so my upper room was uh, over the sink washing dishes or on the couch folding laundry for my husband, it was on his commute to work when he would turn off the radio and open up his heart to the Lord. So we were flourishing in this time. We had three children. We were doing well as a family, as professionals. Um, and it was a really good season. Then one summer day, unexpectedly, I received a worrisome phone call from one of my husband's colleagues. I was in California while Dave stayed in Virginia for some public speaking. Uh, when one of the colleagues noticed that he had been slurring his words during the lecture, he called, very afraid about his health. 
A few weeks later, on my 39th birthday, Dave was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. The children were ages five, three, and one, and I was pregnant. Soon, Dave lost his ability to speak and remained wheelchair-bound, stomaching cruel dosages of chemo. A long seven months of suffering lay ahead. One night, he collapsed and was rushed to the ER with an upper respiratory blood clot. Hospitalized in Nova Fairfax, Dave was being prepared for a second brain surgery. I had just tucked my children into bed when the phone rang. Dave's surgeon called to explain how he needed to remove Dave's tumor immediately and that he had to reschedule the surgery for next week tomorrow. As I tried to absorb this new information, an operator broke in on the phone line. This is when we had landlines and I'm really using a phone <laughs> and I have my cell phone. Um, and, um, and at that point, the operator breaks out and it's my doctor. She wanted to know where I was and says that she's waiting for me at the hospital. And don't I know how urgent it is? My life is at risk. Because what had happened is I had miscarried our baby now five months in my womb, and I needed to go to a, through a vaginal delivery since the baby was already over two pounds. I literally had a doctor in each ear telling me it was an emergency. I hit a new threshold of incomprehensibility. I put down the phone, sank to my chair dumbfounded, how could I go through this? Again, no time to think. I had to hurry, but I could barely move. I was so dazed. Wandering around the house in slow motion, I couldn't find my keys. What would I need? I had to get to the hospital. I had to sit down. And then suddenly, a friend walked up to my side porch and said, can I give you a ride to the hospital? I think I said, it's OK. I can handle it. But I gratefully received this mercy deep in the wells of my soul. I had no reserves. I got in the car. I had lost babies before, so I felt no fear. I just felt utterly alone. My beloved was in the other part of the hospital, and I had to go through labor and delivery by myself. It was late, and not too many people even knew I was there. My best friend from college hopped in her car from New York and drove seven hours to be with me. But she would show up at 4 o'clock in the morning, which meant I had a long night ahead of me. About midnight, two priests showed up. I didn't know them, but somebody in my friend circle sent them. They were joking and talking, and I honestly wasn't sure I wanted these two strangers to be with me in such intimate space. But they stayed, two priests, in the dark, and me. When there is no one, sometimes God sends angels. I delivered our son Joseph that night, and to be separated from my husband was terribly painful. I just wanted him to see his son. The compassionate nurses took him to Dave for a personal goodbye. I, however, started hemorrhaging. For a nanosecond, I thought, what if my kids would be left orphans? Surely God wouldn't be that cruel. They whisked me away for medical intervention. This baby, baby Joseph, had fueled our hope that Dave would be healed. God wouldn't take my husband and leave me with three children and a newborn, but he took Joseph. Would he also take Dave? I had already experienced the unimaginable, and when that threshold is crossed, untold suffering robs us of our innocence. 
Later, while in recovery, I had a dreamlike experience in which I fell free fall into an abyss. It was absolute nothingness. I felt the total and chilling absence of God. This must be hell, I thought, and it shook me to the core. Today, this vivid experience or sense, whatever it was, it still remains one of my darkest spiritual moments. When Dave and I finally did return home, we found a new normal. We experienced grace, mercy, moments of joy, and an outpouring of love and prayers from around the world. The suffering continued, but this time it was Dave's to carry. I just watched. I poked him with needles and provided comfort managing an army of caregivers and a stream of visitors. The kids jumped on his hospital bed and Rosie, who was just two years old, rubbed his feet with lotion. The disease progressed and Dave's physical capabilities deteriorated rapidly. Another hospital stint produced psychotic episodes by an incompetent doctor and I, I prayed like with warrior prayer in Ephesians 6.12 which is calling that we, to remind us that we fight not flesh and blood but principalities and powers. The medical intervention seemed endless and it continued and all through this I prayed for healing. I lived in truth and accepted whatever was to come. I saw the love of my life fight for his life, but he didn't do it for him. He did it for us, for me, and for our, his children. He hung on as long as he did for us. Love bears all things. He was bearing it, but at this point I was beginning to wear out. He had suffered so much for our sake, fought so hard, all because of love. Although his body weakened, his spirit continued to shine. He was made perfect. And I got to witness all of this. It is the greatest privilege of my life to know a love that pours itself out entirely for another. When Dave closed his eyes for the last time, we sang Dona Nobis Pachum at his bedside while a single tear rolled down his cheek. Oh, death, where is your sting? Love conquers all things. And is this not the greatest mercy that Christ suffered and died that we might have eternal life with him? Much later at the cemetery, I had an upper room realization. Dave had died on the very date that our son Joseph was expected to be born, March 10th, 2002. In that moment, I understood so clearly that our true hope, the kind of hope that never disappoints, is fulfilled in heaven. That's why Jesus was trying to tell his disciples in the upper room the night before his death. He said he goes to prepare a place for them in his father's house. This upper room is God's heavenly kingdom. I was so consoled to know that the Lord had prepared a place for Dave in his father's home and to imagine our baby Joseph was waiting there to meet his father. So what did I learn from companioning Dave in the midst of his suffering, even until death? That God gives us extraordinary grace for extraordinary times. I also discovered that in loving till the end, there is no end, only more love. 
The Hebrew definition of shalom describes a dynamic peace that comes when all relationships are put in right order. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with creation. My Dave was living an eternal shalom. But I had to return to ordinary time. And here's where my conflict with God begins. For those of you who have internal conflict, listen up. At the very time I needed to lean into the embrace of my Savior, when I needed him most, I resisted. I became fearful and had a hard time trusting that Jesus had my back. Grace upon grace continued to pour forth. But on bad days when depression and self-pity kicked in, I couldn't see or feel those graces. I poured myself into daily survival, raising the children, caring for my mother-in-law, returning to my graduate work, and then teaching again. Outwardly, I did my best to live faithfully. But inside, the deep grief dwelled, and I lost my ability to love with abandon, to accept any cross for Christ. Praying became more difficult as I feared what more God might ask of me, and I definitely played it safe. I returned to rote prayer and practiced my faith out of duty, not delight. In these years, I, I can't really recall a really wild upper room experience, but surely God's love was there and present. God is patient. He waits. His love is steadfast enduring, kind, gentle, and ever beckoning us toward green pastures. When I protected myself from deep intimacy with him, he sent me kindnesses through other people. Still, it's very hard to hear the shepherd's voice if you don't go into the upper room, if you don't set aside time for him, to be with him, to listen, to share, to be in holy communion. I wasn't exactly at war with God, but he remained at a healthy arm's distance from me. And thus, I had a measure of shalom, but it certainly wasn't the fullness. Healing came as I slowly yielded more of my heart to him. Five minutes here, holy hour there, prayerful walk with my dog, morning coffee on the couch with the scriptures and my journal. And all of this eventually led me to doing the Ignatian spiritual exercises a year ago. That's an hour of prayer a day, meeting with the spiritual director over a week, over the course of nine full months. And they take you through four movements of salvation history to learn about the magnificent love of God. And it all begins with practicing gratitude. And for me, it began with the simplest of all things. Thank you, God, for waking me up this morning. Thank you, God, that I'm alive. Thank you, God. And it just grew and grew and grew from there. And it began to fill my heart again. I'm not afraid any longer of spending time in the upper room with the lover of my soul. I'm okay now asking God, what's next? How can I use my gifts to build the kingdom here on earth? And the answer at the moment, well... My daughter and I are traveling to Africa this summer to work in an orphanage for a month. And a year ago, that was not in the plans. Can't even say I knew where Zambia was. <laughs> um, so spending time in that upper room helps us step out in faith.
So in this next part, uh, to wrap up, I mean, you have the questions, and so there's a sense of questions in there. I'm going to read them, but we won't take a moment for you to do them. But I want you to reflect on have you had an experience where you stepped out in faith, but it didn't really work out so well? Perhaps the cost was too great, or the work too hard, or you became discouraged and disillusioned. What did you do in that situation? Are you still stuck there now, or has it passed? If it's in the past, think about how is God present? Because it will help you recognize how God is present to you now. So this week, and commit to this, this week, go to your upper room, wherever it is, and if you don't have one, create one, and have a conversation, a heart-to-heart -heart with God. You can shake your fist at Him, you can cry, you can negotiate, you can laugh, you can fall asleep, you can just come to the Good Shepherd. He will meet you where you are. And if you linger a while, you just might find yourself in a new place. I'm pretty confident you will grow in your ability to experience shalom. And if you need a little bit of encouragement, I've actually invited my daughter to sing a song that she wrote um, for you all tonight. Uh, she write it for you, but she wrote it, and I asked her to sing it to you because <laughs> I still know you. <laughs> But it does remind us that God has something special for each one of us. So if you're stuck in some conflict somewhere, don't worry about it. There's a way bigger picture. This is Rosie. Hey guys, I'm Rosie. Um, I wrote this song a while ago for a friend who was trying to find her upper room. Um, so yeah, it's called Stronger Than You Think. Can you hear? Can you guys hear?
conflict to begin with. Mm -hmm. Given that we all have different temperaments and different styles of communication, different assumptions, beliefs, values. At home, at work, especially if you get at work, but right here. Right. What I would start with is self-reflection with knowing who you are. So, and being able to be articulate about it. So, on many levels. So, know your values, know your communication style, know your personality. And often we have to teach other people who we are. We have to let them know, I'm this way, so please respect that. Because it preventively, you're helping them understand who you are. Don't have a serious confirmation, uh, conversation with me after 8 o'clock. I'm a morning person. Have a difficult conversation with me then. So the very first thing is really know yourself. Spend some time on it. The other thing is pay attention to your emotions. Emotions are your friends. And they give you information. And they also pay attention to the emotional dimension of conflict. So um, being able to read emotion is a real key to helping you understand what's going on and how to respond to it. So um, we have these presenting emotions. Sometimes we just communicate anger about everything. But really, what's underneath it is a lot of other things. And usually, it's something that we're maybe ashamed of, or afraid of, or we're sad about. But it comes out all the same anger, particularly with males. Um, that's an acceptable public emotion, anger. But those other emotions aren't so acceptable. So you have to get in touch with your emotional side and also communicate. I'm feeling angry. Use those feeling words. I'm feeling sad. So you're giving someone a heads up, expressing what is going on, and then they have more to work with. They have more abilities to respond to you because you're giving them information, not just, they're not just receiving the emotion. Oh, I'm in a bad mood. I'm storm off. So, so, and the other piece is taking responsibility for those things. So as you're able to govern those things well, you can also understand them, work through them, and get beyond them and so you're not bringing that into the conversation. You're not bringing that in. So maybe you deal with that in the car. You, you build in space between your commute and walking through the door to your roommates. So you had a bad something at work. But stop, resolve it, figure it out before you walk through the door so you don't just all over them. So. Other questions? Thank you all. Thank you again, Zoe, for being here with us tonight. And as she said, she'll be around a little bit if anyone wants to talk to her. Um, a few announcements for you before you all leave. Next Fairfax Theology on Tap is Monday, June 19th. And our speaker is actually Father Bob Solinsky. He's the pastor at Nativity. Um, just this year, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award through the diocese, so he has a lot to say. And he thought that he would talk to you about, um, his title is called Invitation to a Party Reconciliation. And he really wants to talk about, it's actually a little bit of a, a follow-up from Joni's talk. Um, some of us just feel like we don't know how to allow God's love to come into our life, or we feel like we can't be forgiven for what we've done. So he's going to give a bit of encouragement about that sacrament next month. At Nativity, this coming Friday, we have our monthly praise and worship. It's an hour of contemporary music from 7.30 to 8.30 in our church. And afterwards, we're having an adult social. We're going to have a grill outside and make some s'mores, weather permitting. So you're all welcome to come and join us. 
We also have a small group every Tuesday night. Right now we're working through a study called Pivotal Players. It's Father Robert Barron's video series. So each, every other week, we'll start talking about a new saint or holy person. That's from 7.30 to 9 in our youth room at Nativity. And drop-ins are always welcome. We love having new people. Also stay tuned for Catholic Sports Club Sand Volleyball Dates. We just finished basketball activity. Now we're moving to volleyball at Burnt Lake. It's probably going to be twice a month, hopefully starting beginning of June. Uh, so we'll let you know about that as soon as we have dates. And we also just want to remind you, Nativity is starting a new theater ministry over the summer. If you didn't know, we're doing Godspell. And uh, the shows will be July 20 to 22nd. And they're always looking for new volunteers. So if you're interested in theater or you've always wanted to, but you've always been told no when you auditioned, you can come and help behind the scenes. This could be right for you. Uh, if you can spare some time either each week or just a couple of hours in the weekend in June or July, um, you can actually talk to Katie. Where did Katie go? She's in the corner. Yeah, talk to Katie afterwards. And Melissa is now going to come up and give some uh, St. Leo's announcements. We just have two things coming up. Um, we have Memorial Day camping. Um, so we're going out 